evening. Thanks for coming. Um, tonight's shear was dedicated by our dear friend Moshe Polin, and this is in honor of his mother, Zyortzeit, on the 12th of Nisan. Her name is Bernice Basender. May her neshama have a very good aliyah to the greatest of heights, and only, only, only good news in the entire family, mazel and bracha, and all, whatever, whatever, whatever you need, whatever you want, should be blessed with, and a very, very, very um, special yamtif, and only great things to you and the family. Another dedication for tonight's shir was by Sharon Bistamsky, and this is in honor of her mother, Mrs. Ellie Rubin's birthday, which is on the 20, coming up on the 28th of Nisan. So may Hashem bless you with a shnas brachanatzlacha, wonderful good year. <coughs> And um, in good health, and uh, a lot of prosperity and everything, and nachas from all the children and grandchildren, and only only good things. And achakasha v'sameach to you. And I would like to take this opportunity to wish all those who listen to this to the to this shear, and your families, all those who are attended Mayon Yisrael and support um, our good work, amongst the rest of the Jewish people. With a um, a wonderful, joyful, and meaningful yamtiv, and may we all merit to to break out of all the limitations and all the boundaries that hold us down, and ultimately uh, we should merit this year finally, finally, finally to break out of this exile and celebrate in Yerushalayim Abnuya, in Yerushalayim that is built. Um, well, now, um, this week's class, I'm going to, it's Parsha's uh, Achrei Mois, but we're not going to do the Parsha. We're going to give a Pesach class, even though we've done a Pesach class earlier, which that was a pre-Pesach class, and this is a Pesach class. Now, um, we're going to focus the class on the second days of Pesach, on Shvishel Pesach. People, a lot of times, get a lot of preparation for the first Part of Pesach, we have so many Haggadahs and so many Shirim that are given in that, but less has been spoken about the second half of Pesach and this class, being that we won't have a class during Chalamoid, so this is the class dedicated to the second part of Pesach. This opportunity, I'd like to invite everyone to participate in our Sefer Torah campaign. Uh, just to remind everyone, there is a very, very special Sefer Torah which um, has... Um, been written in honor of the Baal Shem Tov, a man um, of great miracles and great love for the Jewish people. The Sefer Torah is going to travel to the holy Baal Shem Tov's place. Everybody is invited to participate and buy letters, parshas, or whatever it is in the Sefer Torah for a great schus of those special blessings from the holy Baal Shem Tov and the, and the blessings of the letters of the Torah on its own. Go to mayon.com to participate. Also, um, there is still opportunity for those who want to register for our upcoming trip to the Ukraine, where we will be going to about 22 tzaddikim, uh, maybe more, and praying and davening and uh, connecting to their holy souls. And we will bring um, and uh, anybody that would like to join us. It's a week trip. It's going to be a phenomenal opportunity. So again, go to Mayon and you can sign up for the trip. A time is running out, so please do that now as... The trip will take place only one week after Pesach on May 8th, 
through May 15th. Thank you so much. And uh, again, now to the class. Um, just to mention one little thing, try to connect it also to the first days of Pesach. In the Agada, we say, Mitchila at the beginning, our forefathers were um, served idols. And then we say, and now Hashem, God, the omnipresent, has brought us close to his service. And we bring a verse, as it says, that uh, on the other side of the river, your father sat, and Hashem says, I brought them, which means on the other side of the Mesopotamian river, which is the uh, Euphrates River, in Mesopotamia, you lived your forefathers, and referring to Terach and Avram Avinu before he found and connected to God, I guess before he was three years old, or I mean, I mean Avram actually lived it till he was 75, and then he came across to the land of Israel. And then it says, and then Hashem says, I, I brought him close, I took him across the river. Um, now, on the first glance, this is obviously a very shameful thing. The Talmud says, in order to show our appreciation, our gratitude to God, we have to recognize the great change that happened, that we were once in a very lowly state, and now we came out of that. And besides, for our physical um, state of bondage and suffering in Egypt, but we were also spiritually in a dark place. So that's why we speak about how we were part of, we too were, were pagans and idol worshippers. But then all that changed. However, obviously the, 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 the Pasuk has much, much meaning to it. Let's try to find if there's anything positive to the idea that our fathers lived on the other side of the river. And here is a fascinating idea, which I'd like to share from you, a discourse from Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, discussing mainly the second days of Pesach. We studied it here Thursday night a few weeks ago. It blew my mind. It was a very, very exciting class. But this is a short um, version of a longer class. And we'll try to um, just a synopsis in the main idea. Um, in regards to Pesach, the Torah speaks about the holiday of Pesach in quite a few places. <clears throat> One of them, the first time we encounter the Yom Tov of Pesach is in Parshas Boy, that's in Exodus 12, in Shemos, Perik Yud Beis. Um, that's where we're most as instructed about the laws of Pesach. So the, in the second time, the Torah speaks about Pesach in at length. I mean, it's mentioned briefly also in a few other parishes, but the next main discussion about the laws of the holidays is in, parsh- is in Leviticus, in Parshas, in Vayikra, in Parshas Emor. So in Parshas Emor, and to find where that is, just give me one moment. In Parshas Emor, it's called the Parshas of the Mayadim. So over here too, in Emor, Chav Gimel, in Leviticus 23. Um, then the next time we have it being discussed, again, this brief mention of it in other places in the Chumash, but in length, there is the description of the Musafs in Parshas Pinchas, which are the additional sacrifices that are brought on the holidays. And finally, which in, in Deuteronomy and Devarim, Parshas, um, Parshas Re'eh. So over there... It speaks again another parsha about all the yamim tovim. So I would like to show and point out that there is a interesting difference in regards to eating. We know Pesach we celebrate mainly today's days. 
Pesach is primarily celebrated through the mitzvah of eating matzah. We don't have chametz, we don't have any leavened bread, or any, any even little piece of it around the house. We're definitely not allowed to eat it. And we eat matzah. The obligation, however, to eat matzah is really only the first night. The rest of Pesach, you're not allowed to eat chametz, but you don't necessarily have to eat matzah. But if you learn in the Chumash itself, you're looking in the Pasuk, the Pasuk says that you should eat matzah for seven days. So it is stated in Pasha's boy, Shivas Yamim, seven days. I'm quoting the Pasuk in Pasuk Tezvav, uh, verse 15. Shivas Yamim, seven days, matzah is techelu, you should eat matzah. Okay? Then in Pasha's Emor, um, the Pasuk describes over here, again, the laws of Pesach. Shivas Yamim, Matzah Techelu. This is in Pasuk Vav, Perek Chav Gimel, chapter 23, verse 6. Shivas Yamim, seven days, Matzah Techelu. You should eat matzah. And then we go on to Parshas Re'eh. And over there too, it says in Pasuk Gimel, this is chapter 16, Perek Tezayin, Pasuk Gimel. Do not eat chametz on it on the carbon pesach. And for seven days, don't eat chametz. Shivas yamim matzis. For seven days, you should eat matzis. Lechamoyni, poor man's bread. So we have clear instructions in the Torah to eat matzah for seven days. However, if we continue on in Parshas Re'eh, and this is the main pasuk I want to focus on in tonight's class. And that is in Pasuk Ches, it says, Six days you should eat matzah. And on the seventh day, it should be a day of withholding for God. You're not to do any work. We know that Pesach is seven days. Today, when we live in the diaspora and anywhere outside of the land of Israel, we keep the holiday for eight days, not for seven days. We keep it for eight days. But that's only an added day in the. But mainly the holiday is seven days. Now, amongst in within that holiday itself, we differentiate between the first day and the last day, which are days that are forbidden in work. Now, again, let's make it clear: those who live in the diaspora, we keep always a second day to the holiday, so it will be the first two days of Pesach. It's considered a main holiday. We're not allowed to do any any labor, any work. And then the last two days, which is the seventh and the eighth, we're not allowed to do any work. But in the land of Israel, even today, only the first day is a holiday and the last day is a holiday. And in the middle, it's called Cholamoy, the intermediate days. It's the weekday of the holiday, in which work is permitted. And of course, there are restrictions on that, but that's the general idea. Now, the Torah says, in all the places where the Torah talks about eating matzah, it says seven days eat matzah. And only in the Parshas Re'eh, in this last Pasuk, in Pasuk Ches, the Torah says, six days you should eat matzah. And in the seventh day should be a yamta, but it doesn't say you should eat matzah. The sages take note of this difference, and they actually prove from here that you don't have to eat matzah at all on Pesach besides the first night. Based on a rule, on a, on a, on a rule, on a concept, um, there's 13 methods in which the Torah is, which Hashem had given to, to Moshe Rabbeinu, in order to extrapolate law, to figure out law from scripture, from the written Torah. How do you extrapolate law? There's 13 methods that were given to Moshe, which Moshe taught us, Yud Gimel, Midoy, Shatayr, and Adrashas, Behem, the 13 Midos, ways of study, 
which we apply to the text and to figure out how to do this. And of course, we can't do this on our own. The sages did it for us. Now, um, over there, one of those rules are that anything that was part of a general rule, and then something, and then one part was taken out from the general rule, so that makes, it didn't come to teach only on itself, but it came to teach on the entire concept. Which means, when the Pasuk says, when the Pasuk says, uh, let's say given any general rule, if I say, um, everybody should come to my house tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And that, and that, that was my statement. So every, everybody is everybody. And then I go ahead and I say that, uh, Yankel, you don't have to come. So when I go ahead and I say Yankel doesn't have to come, the mere fact that I said Yankel doesn't have to come, that means that not only doesn't Yankel have to come, but everybody can ask, do I have to come? Do I have to come? Because since initially Yankel was included, and now I said he doesn't have to come, once I took him out of the rule, kind of the entire rule collapses. Um, then why does the Torah say the rule in the first place? Okay, there's a matter for discussion in that. But that's the idea. Now since over here it said seven days you should eat matzah, including all seven days. And then the Torah in the last Pasuk, Apashas Re'e, says only six days. So the seventh day was the seventh day, Shavi Yishel Pesach, which is the seventh day of Pesach, was excluded. Once that was excluded, it came to teach on the entire thing, and it knocked down the entire structure that you don't have to eat matzah at all, at all during the seven days. Then how do we know then? It, that, mean, that means you're allowed to eat matzah, you don't have to eat matzah. Then the question is, so how do we know that the first night is a mitzvah? Well, there is a separate commandment that says another verse that says, Be'erev teichlu matzahs, that in the evening you should eat matzah. So that comes to teach you that the first eat night of Pesach, you have to eat matzah. Okay, this is the idea. So according to this, there's no difference between the seventh day of Pesach and the rest of Pesach. Um, that all the days of Pesach, you're allowed to eat matzah, you don't have to eat matzah. Um, but the first night, you're obligated. Fine. But we still have to understand what we say. It's called apiprimius in Yanim. In other words, if we're looking at it from a more deeper perspective and trying to figure out why did the Torah teach it to us in such a strange way? First it says all seven days you should eat matzah, and then it says that, the, that, that, that only six days you should eat matzah. And, even, and, and that is only in one Pasuk, <clears throat> that it says six days you should eat matzah in the end of Parshas Re'eh. And it contradicts itself from three Pesukim before that. Just a few, four or five Pesukim before that, it says seven days you should eat matzah. Then it tells you only six days to eat matzah. So what is the significance, what is the meaning for that? The other thing we need to understand, <coughs> excuse me, is what we need to understand is that in addition to this, what makes this verse stand out unique and special, there's two other things that are unique about this Pasuk in Pasha's Re'e, where it says six days you should eat matzah. When it speaks about the seventh day, it says, that the seventh day should be an atzeres. Atzeres means, Rashi says it means two things. Atzeres means a withholding. It comes from the word atzor. Atzor means to stop. In Hebrew, if you see a, a, a stop sign, it says atzor, stop. So you're stopping from doing what you usually do. Usually do work. This is a day where you refrain. It's a day of refraining. That's number one. Also, atzeres means a gathering. You're, it's a, Rashi says it means Russian knisa, where everybody congregates, everybody gathers together. So really every holiday is called atzeres in the sense, should be called atzeres because all holidays you're not allowed to do any work, it's an atzeres. And I guess this is in contrast 
to the intermediate days where you're allowed to do work. So here it's at Seres, only the seventh day. Fine. But it would apply also to Sukkot and to Shavuot and to the first, both the first and the last days of Sukkot and Shavuot and also the first and last days of Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. They're all at Seres, days of refraining and days of congregating. Um, however, in the explicitly, we find the word atzeres applied only to three holidays. Which are the three holidays? The latter day of Pesach, not the first day of Pesach, Shvisha Pesach, the latter day of Pesach is explicitly called atzeres. Shmini atzeres, the latter day of Sukkot, which is called Shmini atzeres. It's even here, the word atzeres is even in the name itself. It's called Shmini atzeres. Because the Torah also refers to it as atzeres. And finally, Shavuos is also called Atzeres, but it's not in the Pasuk. If you look through Scripture, you're not going to find Shavuos being called Atzeres even once. Shavuos is called Atzeres in the, um, in the, in the um, terminology of the sages. When the sages speak about Yom Tif, it's interesting, the three pilgrimage holidays, the three Shalish Regalim in Chazal, in the words of the Mishnah and in the Talmud, is referred to as follows. It's, they don't use the same terms that we use. Pesach is the same. Pesach is called Pesach. Sukkot is called Chag. Plain Chag. So even though to us Chag, every holiday is Chag. Like we say Chag Sameach. But in terminology of the Mishnah, when it says Bachag, it means on Sukkot. And Shavuos is called Atzeres. Always. It's called Atzeres. So we have three holidays called Atzeres. Now, we do find... And again, we have to understand why Dafka, those three, why only these are called Atzeres. Good, that's something to discuss another time. However, within the term Atzeres, we find, at least biblically, where the Torah mentions Atzeres, we find a difference between the way it's referred to by um, Sukkot and the way it is referred to by, by, um, by Pesach. By Sukkot, in one place it says Atzeres. Atzeres who? It is an atzeres. It doesn't say, just as atzeres who, it is a withholding. But in another place, in Pasha's Pinchas, where it talks about the Musafs, it says atzeres tia lochem. It should be a congregating day for yourselves. Or, right? It should be a day, atzeres, it is atzeres lochem for you. Um, however, over here in this Pasuk, it says atzeres lashem elokecha. It is a day of withholding or a day of gathering. Lashem elokecha for God your God. So here, um, the sa- now the, the sages, of course, take note of this, and you have to read these things carefully. How come in one place by Sukkot it says Atzeres la Lochem, it is an Atzeres for you, and the other place it says Atzeres Lashem Elokecha, in this pasuk in Parshas Re'eh, the same pasuk where it says Sheishes Yamim Teichal Matzei, six days you should eat Matzei, Biyayim Ashvi Atzeres Lashem Elokecha. So this really has a halachic ramifications. The question is. How do we celebrate Yom Tif? What was the holidays, what kind of celebration was the holidays meant to be? Um, we're congregating for what purpose? We're gathering together for what purpose? If it's, should it be a spiritual gathering or should it be a more physical gathering? Should it be one that gives joy and pleasure to the body or one that gives joy and pleasure to the soul? In, in one's connection to God. So it depends which, what, what it says in the Pasuk. From the words, Atzeres Tielochem, it should be a congregation for yourselves, means make yourself happy. You know, get together, have a nice time. 
If it says atzeres l'Hashem alokecha, it should be a gathering for God. That means that it should be devoted totally and exclusively to spiritual matters. More like a Yom Kippur holiday, right? So the question is, how does it work? So there is an, actually an argument. Now, from the Pasuk, it seems to be saying both. So one opinion is, in the Talmud, and the Gemara, that a person can choose. You can either live, you, you can either celebrate your Yom Tif, total spirituality, completely devoted to God, without any physical participation, which means technically someone can fast, just like Yom Kippur. Someone can fast on the holiday, if you want to be, and you want to be, it's not like you're not going to have any pleasure, but your pleasure is going to come from your connection to studying Torah and deep meditative prayer and connection to Hashem. That's going to be your thrill and that's going to be your enjoyment and that's okay. Or if you want to devote the entire day to the physical pursuit, that's okay. You'll enjoy a, a nice meal and eat a big roast and enjoy all the other physical, you know, have a, have a beautiful yomtiv relax and have a nice time that is that's one opinion you can obviously it doesn't mean that you you've been exempt from the basic requirement of saying the Shema and praying but the minimum that you're obligated to do every day and the rest of the time devote it completely to the pleasure of the the body and that's one opinion however there's another opinion and that's the accepted opinion that you're supposed to that we're it's half and half we split the day in half Half the day should be, in other words, there should be increased spiritual um, um, activity. We know that when we go to on, on Yom Tif, uh, there is a longer prayer service, and there's, you know, there's the longer reading of the Torah, and the rabbi will give a sermon, and one should study a little more, and one should spend at least half the day of Yom Tif in connecting to, in, in learning Torah, doing mitzvahs on a, more, on, a, on a spiritual level, and then one should also, on Yom Tif, give more pleasure and, and uh, pay attention to the body, make the body happy. As we know, that even though we honor the Shabbos, the, the cooking forensic that takes place for the yamtiv and the pleasure of yamtiv in terms of the meals that we eat is on a higher level than on Shabbos. So that is because also we get new clothing for yamtiv and things like that. So it should be on a, because it should be lachem. So chatzi lachem, chatzi lachem. It's based on these two verses, where one of them says, and the other one says, The question we have over here tonight is, how come, particularly in regards to Shvishel Pesach, does it say, to God, and not Stam and Shvishel Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach, but in the very same passage that it says, is there a connection to this, these two ideas that are mentioned by Shvishel Pesach? In this one pasuk in Parshas Re'eh, that this is a day that you don't have to eat matzah, different than all the other days where it says you should eat matzah. Again, I'm not going halachically because halachically you don't have to eat matzah the rest of Pesach either. We're talking about in concept. It says six days you should eat matzah. This day you're free from matzah eating. In addition to that, it says atzeres l'shem alokecha. It's a gathering for God, not for yourselves. And finally, one more thing: we know that what differentiates yom tiv from all other, um, what differentiates Yom from Shabbos, which makes Yom unique, is that on Shabbos, we're not allowed to do any work, and Yom we're not allowed to do any work. But there's a difference in the refraining from work in Yom is quite different than the refraining from work on Shabbos. On Shabbos, you're not allowed to do any work. 
any work. No, the, I mean, of course, those things, the 39 types of work that are the primary type, um, uh, malacha work. And then, of course, there are all the offshoots and details in which are, one should study and learn all the laws of Shabbos. But in addition to that, I'm sorry, on Yom Tif, contrasted on the holidays, we also forbidden with the primary labors, but there is an exception. That work that is related to food preparation is permitted on Yom Tif. Of course, you have to consult your rabbi. It's not just a blanket permission. There are certain things that are forbidden. But in general, all like cooking and things like that, food preparation is permitted on Yom Tif, besides Yom Kippur. But all other holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, food preparation is permitted. Why? And the reason is because the sages derive it from the verse. In the, when it comes to Shabbos, it says, So any work, you're not allowed to do. However, when it comes to Yom Tiv, it says, All laborious work you're not allowed to do. Which comes to tell you that there is a type of work that you're allowed to do, and that is the extra word, avoda, which means labor. Melacha means work. Avoda means labor. That extra work comes to teach you that work that is not labor, that work that is food preparation is permitted to do on Yom Tiv. The strange thing is that on this very verse that I'm talking about now, Sheishas Yamim, six days you should eat matzah, and on the seventh day it should be atzeres, over there it says, even though we're talking about Yom Tiv, it says you're not allowed to do work. It doesn't say, it just says, which would seem to imply that on the seventh day of Pesach you're not allowed to do anything, even food preparation is prohibited. Now, halachically, that's not true. On the seventh day of Pesach, we are allowed to do work because in, in, in other verses, we're allowed to do food preparation because in other verses, in regards to the seventh day of Pesach, it says explicitly, you're not allowed to do laborers' work. But it's only this one Pasuk in Parshas Re'eh, the same Pasuk that we're referring to earlier, it says you're not allowed to do any work. So here we have three things that's so unique in this Pasuk that about the seventh day of Pesach. And again, if this would have been the only Pasuk about the seventh day of Pesach, that would be one thing. But it clashes with what it says about Shvishal Pesach in the, all the other verses. And here are the three things that make this verse stand out. Number one, this is the only place where it says seven days you should eat, um, six days you should eat matzah, and, and, and not... Um, and not, and not seven days. Number two, over here it says it should be a gathering for God's sake, a congregation for Hashem. And thirdly, it says over here, um, the Pasuk says over here that you're not allowed to see, you're not allowed to work, implying that all labor, even food preparation, would be forbidden. So let's see if we can gain insight into this idea. So um, let's get a little bit a deeper understanding into the essence of the holiday of Shvishal Pesach. See, Shvishal Pesach, on the seventh day of Pesach, we're commemorating the splitting of the sea. When we went out of Egypt, on the first day of Pesach was the actual exodus from Egypt. But on the seventh day of Pesach is when Hashem split the sea. The Egyptians came running after the Jewish people, and, and God tore open the sea, and the Jews went through the sea. We sang the song by the sea, and we know this was the culmination or the climax of the Exodus. Because until this point, even though geographically we left Egypt, 
but Egypt remained a looming threat over the Jewish people as later they came after them. But only at this point, Egypt was decimated and gone once and for all, and the Jewish people were truly a liberated and free people. So really, the seventh day of Pesach is the highlight of Pesach. Now, when the sages tell us something very interesting about Shvishel Pesach, and they say that Gedoyla, um, three things about, about what happened at the sea. And my question over here today is going to be, is, is there any relationship between these three things? Number one, they, they say that, um, in addition, of course, as mentioned earlier, that Shvishel Pesach is the, is the completion. What began on the first day of Pesach is now concluded on the seventh day of Pesach. But in addition to that, uh, so they say that, that, that one of the things that happened on the first day of Pesach was when we left Egypt, we all became, not only did we leave Egypt bondage, but we immediately became a wealthy people. Because when we went out of Egypt, the Jewish people took the spoils out of Egypt. All the spoils of Mitzrayim, um, they, they, they were given the chance to, um, as the sages refer to it, the loot, the loot of Egypt. Now, it wasn't looting uh, similar to the Ferguson looting that took place in, right, just last year. It was that the Jews asked the Egyptians for their um, gold and silver, for their jewelry and fine clothing, and the Egyptians gave it to them willfully. Of course, it was only on a loan, and that's why it's called a loot, because in the end, the Jewish people did not give it back. It wasn't considered theft, because it was really the, what the Egyptians had owed the Jewish people for all the unpaid wages that they hadn't uh, paid them for 200 years of slave labor in which the Jews didn't get paid. So therefore, they really owed this to them, and that's why we took what was rightfully ours. Fine. But the sages say that even though when we left Egypt, we had this great fortune, but it doesn't come close to the loot that happened at the sea. The sayam, the loot at the sea, was much greater than the biza, than the, um, the, the loot that the Jewish people took out when they went out of Egypt. What was so great? Because the Egyptians, when they went out, when they would go to war, they would dress themselves up in, in, in uh, they would wear all kinds of jewelry and they would decorate their chariots and their horses and uh, their uniforms with, with all kinds of ornaments, which was very, 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 very uh, uh, of great wealth, of an extreme wealth. Now when the Egyptians were drowned in the sea and God made that, the, that they washed up on the seashore, that all the Egyptians washed up on the seashore, so there was a, the Jews made a killing. They went back to the seashore and they were told to take the loot and they were looting everything that was, that was there and to the point that Moshe had to chase them away. When it was time to leave, Moshe had to take them and by, force them away from them. They just say, so the loot was so much greater. It's a little problematic. I mean, why are we so concerned about the loot? I mean, looting generally doesn't have a good, a good connotation to it. And over here we're saying that one of the great things about Shvishal Pesach was that we really, 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 really became rich because of the loot that we took by the sea. Fine. In addition to that, we know that by the splitting of the sea, there was extraordinary divine revelation. 
Now, aside from the fact that we were saved and we experienced an awesome salvation in which our lives were hanging by a thread and God made this an unbelievable miracle, spectacular miracle to save the Jewish people, the, in addition to that, there was enormous godly revelation. It wasn't just a miracle in which you can deduce God. See, since something in nature changed, oh, that's a sign that God is, there is a mysterious force that's working. No. At the splitting of the sea, there was a revelation of powerful, powerful, powerful prophecy to all the Jewish people, to the point that the sages say that even the most spiritually undeveloped or spiritually immature person uh, experienced at the sea such high levels of vision that which the greatest of prophets never saw. Even Yecheskel, who um, uh, Ben Buzi was considered one of the great, great prophets. And other prophets did not see as much and as deep and as great as the Jewish people saw when they crossed the sea. And this is alluded to in the Pasuk, Zekeli v'yanveyu. And even Zekeli means they pointed with their fingers. And even a maidservant saw more than the greatest prophets. And it says even unborn, even little children, even tiny babies had prophecy. And even an unborn fetus in its mother's womb also saw incredible, incredible light. So the, the and it, it almost like that the, the, the way they characterize the splitting of the sea, that the splitting of the sea was the peak of prophecy, the peak of divine revelation. So that's the second thing that happened. The question is, is this related in any way to the, what we spoke about earlier? to the loot of Egypt, or they're just two unrelated elements. Thirdly, the miracle itself, the splitting of the sea. Now, the splitting of the sea is a great God's plan that Hashem, like who would have expected? I mean, we were sandwiched between the Egyptians and the sea. I mean, it would have made, maybe it would have probably been more, more feasible in people's minds that great chariots of angels from above should descend and wage war with the Egyptians or stones or uh, maybe a, a, a meter should come down meter from, from, from out of space and should uh, fall down on the Egyptian armies and destroy them. That was probably more feasible than people thinking that, a, that an ocean, a sea, would split open and a pathway would be made for the people to follow. So that was unbelievable. The question is, is the... Splitting of the sea related to the essential, is there something deeper to the splitting of the sea? Is there some, some and a connection to the divine revelation that happened by the splitting of the sea? Are the three above mentioned elements that happened on Shri Shal Pesach essentially connected to each other? Now, when the Jewish people split the sea, as we said, Mama, sorry, when the Jews went through the sea, they sang a song and a, a, an amazing song, and in the song that they're singing, which they're singing it with divine inspiration and with prophecy, they said like this, Ad yavor amcha Hashem, until your people will cross over, Ad yavor, until they will cross, Amzu, this nation, Kanisa, that you a God have acquired. So, it speaks of, it speaks of, so it mentions, Two times crossing. Now we can say that this is just mere poetry. Since the whole thing, this, whole, this is a song, and the song, and usually when you're singing, 
and to make uh, the song pleasant and unique, you speak, or one can sing a song in a poetic manner. And in a poetry, there is repetition. So over here, when it says, Ad Yavar, until they will cross, Am Hashem, your people, God will cross. Ad Yavar, until they will cross, Am Zu, this people, Kanisit, you've acquired. The repetition is just uh, to, for, for Yaifi, for the beauty of the, of the, of the words. However, we know that uh, there's nothing in the Torah that is extra. So even, even though in pshat, in the simple level, that would be the meaning, but we can go and understand this on a deeper level. When it says two times, ad yavar, until they will cross, until they will cross, it's referring to another crossing in a body of water. We crossed the sea, and we will cross again. When will we cross again? So it's possible to say that this was the crossing of the Jordan. When the Jews went into the land of Israel, they crossed through, and Yeshua, Joshua, stopped the river, and the Jews were able to cross over. So it's possible, Ad Yavar, Ad Yavar, that's the two Ad Yavars. And I would not be surprised, I don't have any recollection right now, but I would not be surprised if it says that in some Midrash Chazal, in some Midrash, that that's what it's referring to. However, um, Kabbalistically, the, ad, the two times Ad Yavar is referring to another crossing of a sea in which we find another crossing of a body of water which we find is going to happen in the future. And that is in the days of Mashiach. There is a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, in Sefer Yeshaya, where it talks about Mashiach. We're going to read this prophecy as the Haftorah of the last day of Pesach. It's, a spe- it's an unbelievable Haftorah talking about the Mashiach and everything and the, and the incredible um, occurrences and happenings that are going to happen when Mashiach will come. And over there, it says as follows. i read it to you. It says, um, this is in Yeshaya Yud, Pasuk Lamed Beis. It says, God is going to dry up the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. And then it says, Mashiach is going to lift his hand over the river. With his powerful wind. And he's going to hit it. He's going to break it open into seven streams or seven passageways. And he's going to lead them through with their shoes. So referring to that in the end of days, the coming of Mashiach, a river will be split. The Farshim says it's referring to the Euphrates River. And the people, and there will be seven passageways, and we will come back, and that's the way we will come back to the land of Israel. There will be a passage for the remnants of the Jewish people, those that will survive the long exile, and uh, like it was when we came out of Egypt. That's the Pasuk. And the Pasuk continues. You will say on that day, I thank you, God, that you were angry with me. May your anger be returned. May, you, may your, your anger be reversed. And it should comfort me. So over here we're speaking about a crossing of a river. For what purpose? For the Jewish people to return to the land. Which over here, by the way, which needs some explanation because, you know, when we went out of Egypt, at that point, we really needed to go through the sea because 
the, there was no way out of the situation. We were closed off. We had nowhere to go. Now, even though, as mentioned earlier, God could have resolved the dilemma in many other ways. One powerful lightning strike, and he could have scared the Egyptians away or killed them all and uh, you know, had them all drop dead. I mean, he didn't need to split the sea. So when Hashem split the sea, it must be that for whatever reason, when the Jewish people went out of Egypt, they have to go through the sea. Now we find similar over here, because today's days we can understand that if you have to cross the Euphrates River, uh, you don't have to split the river. Uh, it's very easy to get over the Euphrates River without splitting the river, especially since uh, through our ability to fly today, uh, we're all going to come back on eagles' wings, whether it means literally eagles' wings or whether it means um, planes, airplanes, whatever it is, the Jewish people, the gathering of the exile, doesn't need a river being split. But yet, there is a prophecy that says that there is going to be the splitting of, of a river, which tells us a really interesting thing, that for whatever reason, when we, when we, the Jewish people, exit the exile, when we go out of Gullus, we go through a body of water. Now, it's interesting, the reason when it says in the Pasuk, Ad Yaver Amcha Hashem, your nation will cross, Ad Yaver, which is alluding to the two times Yavar is referring to the second time we will cross, which is crossing the river, that too is going to happen on Shvi Shal Pesach. Let it be already this coming Shvi Shal Pesach. The, get, the going through the river is going to take place on the seventh day of Pesach. This is the day when we, the Jewish people, go through water. So we need to understand the, way of the content of this. And why the first splitting was a splitting of a sea, and the second splitting, the future splitting, is going to be a splitting of a river, not of a sea. The other thing is, now, now this double splitting, this, the splitting of the past and the splitting of the future, is also alluded to in a pasuk in Tehillim. In Tehillim it says, in Perek Samach, in chapter 66, Perek Samach Vav, or Psalm 66, um, it says like this, Pasuk Vav, verse number 6, Hafach yam le'yabasha. He converted the sea to dry land. Ba'nohar in the river, Yavru. They have crossed or they will cross. The word Yavru can be read in the past and in future. Beragel with their feet. Sham nismachaboy, over there, they will rejoice. We will rejoice in him. What does it mean? Hafach yam le'yabasha. He converted the sea to dry land. Then we know when that happened. That happened by the going out of Egypt. In the river, they crossed with their feet. Again, it could be referring to the crossing of the Jordan, but it's also referring to the, that's if we read Yavru in the past. But if you read Yavru, means in the future, it means we will cross over a river. And there, when we will finally cross over the river, Nismachabai will rejoice in him. Now from the emphasis of Shamnis Machaboy, over there we will rejoice in him, it seems to imply that not only will this crossing be as spectacular as the first crossing when we crossed the sea, but that this crossing will even be higher and deeper and on a much, much higher and a much, uh, on a far more uh, a far more powerful revelation. And we say that over there we're going to rejoice, which even though we can understand that the 
singing and the dancing that happened when the Jews crossed the sea was unbelievable. But yet this is going to be even more powerful and greater. So we need to understand, what is this whole business of we the Jewish people, we go to exile, and then we cross water. And when we cross water, it accompanies great revelation and great joy. What is, what is, this, all, what is this all about? So the idea, is, the idea is as follows. The whole purpose of going down to Egypt. Now I want to, men- want to ask one more question. The, the, the Pasuk, when it describes the crossing of the river, mentioned that when we will cross the river, the Hidrich, they will be led across the river with their shoes, which is kind of seeming to be very superfluous and unimportant. Who cares? I mean, we're going to cross the river. So we're going to cross the river wearing shoes. I mean, what, what, what? Simply maybe it means that it's going to be dry, you can wear your shoes, or else maybe if it's muddy and mucky, then maybe one should take off their shoes uh, and they'll just go through barefoot. That's the meaning. But we need to understand. I mean, what, 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 who cares? I mean, the, the idea is, I'll say, say it's dry. What is the emphasis that we will cross Bana'olim wearing shoes? So to understand all the above. Going back to the loot. Why is the loot so important? And we know when the Jewish people left Egypt, um, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, Daber, no, please speak in the Ba'aznei'am, in the ears of the people, that they should please, 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 I'm begging of them, they should not leave Egypt without asking from their Egyptian friends and neighbors for all their money and, and jewels and, and, and fine clothing. Why was that so important? It says that the Jews said to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, please, why are you wasting our time? We, we, we want to leave. We're so miserable in this wretched exile. We want to leave. And this borrowing and going to our neighbors is only going to delay the the uh, the uh, the exodus. We don't want it. We don't want to delay it. We want to leave now. Better a moment earlier. And most rabbinu said it, but this is very meaningful to God. Please, please. So simply, it was so that the Jews should have compensation. They should be. They should feel that they were compensated. It's a simple level, but there is something really much deeper that's going on over And we mentioned this many times. It's a it's a common concept, but it's just just a very important idea. And that is, why did we go down to Egypt and why did we go into exile in the first place? There is a Kabbalistic concept that we're all familiar with, if you listen to these classes, that, um, that there are sparks of holiness that have um, made its way into all aspects of creation. And even in the far-flung, dark elements within the world, there are nitzutze kedusha, sparks of holiness. The job of the Jewish people, in which we, what we call a tikkun olam, a rectification of the world, is to elevate, to retrieve these sparks. Sparks of holiness means, literally, little pieces of God. Little pieces of God, that's what it means. Divine energy, sparks of, of Hashem, of the Shekhinah, that, have, that are disconnected, so to speak, from their source, and they're imprisoned. They're imprisoned in entities and forces that are antithetical to holiness, to Hashem. They deny God. They're at war with God. They're troublemakers. They're, they're here to cause pain and misery and all kinds of other terrible things in the world. And, but they have power. Where do they receive their power? Where do terrorists have their power? 
Where do evil empires have their power, which is money and strength and military might and sometimes even uh, brain power? Uh, the ancient Egyptians were an incredible force in the world in everything. They had the most advanced um, sciences. They were they and they were very very wealthy and they had great military might. Where did they get such, such power? That's because all power comes from God. But why would God enliven them? It was these sparks of holiness that were embedded in Egypt, and not only in Egypt, but in all of the world. How did these sparks of holiness get imprisoned in the first place? It was part of a great divine scheme, part of God's plan for creation, that he caused in a primordial state before the cre- exist before creation came in as part of this creative process. He brought about a sh- a collapse, a shattering of vessels. In other words, God made a big mess. He caused something to collapse in the spiritual divine realms. That collapse and that breaking sent these sparks flying and f- fragmented pieces of this primordial world, which was very holy and very godly, where, where, of course, obviously we're using physical terms, so we have to understand that this is all abstract, but points of energy were far flung to the deepest places. And, the, and these energy fell down and now were incarnated in, and trapped and created, so to speak, really, really dark entities. Now, the higher these sparks are, the lower they fell, which means that the being that is entrapping them is a darker enemy, a, 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 a lower, a, an entity that is so anti-goodness, it's so evil and so terrible. Our work is to retrieve these sparks because, and I'm, of course it wasn't an accident, God did this as we mentioned earlier, it was a scheme, it was a plan. Hashem created a mess, He wants us to clean it up, and in order that we should feel responsibility for this mess, he blamed Adam and Chava for making the mess. Because, um, as I once mentioned, Hashem already broke everything in creation, but he kept it to some degree together. It, so it was like, you know, when you have a shattered glass, it's already shattered, but it didn't shatter completely yet. And all it takes someone to give it a little shake, and it will come down. That's what happened. Chava went and Adam, and they ate from the tree of knowledge, and they caused the rest of what was really, to a certain degree, almost broken to break completely. And God said, you made a mess, now clean it up. And that has been the toil of the human being, and particularly the main role was taken up by the Jewish people. Now most of those parts of holiness fell in Egypt. Egypt, that's why Egypt was the most powerful empire in, that the world has seen. Because they had the most sparks of holiness. Kabbalistically, the amount of sparks that have fallen are 288. They're called Reish Pechas Nitzutzen, 288 sparks. Even though each one of these sparks later, these are called 288 root sparks, each one of these sparks later shatters and breaks into gazillion sparks. But initially, in their initial number were 288, it's hinted to in a pasuk in the beginning of Parshas Bereshis, where it talks about the worlds of chaos. It says, and the Spirit of God, was hovering. The word merachefes, the Arizal says, if you look at the word carefully, you get the word reish peches, 
288 mace died. The death of the sparks, meaning their collapse and their falling into darkness, is these Reish Peiches, 288 primary sparks, which are the force, which is the underlying force of all Kalipa and all dark elements that are within the cosmos. Now, in Egypt, from the 288 sparks, 202 of these sparks were trapped in Egypt. When the Jewish people went down to Egypt, Egyptian exile, it was for the purpose of elevating these 202 sparks, and we accomplished that. We extracted, we elevated these 202 sparks as a result of the 210 years that we suffered. It's a complicated discussion of how our suffering helps extract the sparks, but that's just the way it is. And when we went out of Egypt, we had these 202 sparks with us. And that's why it says, Vagam Erev Rav, and also a great multitude, a mixture, a multitude mixture. The word Erev means a mixture, Rav, but the word Rav is 202. So the Garizal says, Rav, the 200, these are the 202 primary mega sparks that we took out of Egypt. Now, um, that was most of the work. Now we're only left in the, le- in the last three and a half thousand years of, of observance of Torah and mitzvahs throughout the world and throughout all the remaining exiles are only to elevate the other 86 primary sparks, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, splinter into billions, but it's really only 80, 86 sparks. And together, 86 plus 202 equals 288. When we complete the elevation of these sparks, the world is ready to receive Mashiach. The world is ready for the greatest, to become a garden of Eden, to become a place filled with godly manifestation and godly light. The dream home that Hashem had to have a home in this world is completed when we finish the last of these sparks to to rectify it and to complete it. Now they, the first generation, they did most of the work. You know why? Because they were very powerful souls. The 600,000 souls that went out of Egypt were the 600,000 root souls. We and all the later generations are all tiny little little pieces of their souls. We're offshoots of their souls. They were like the main primary soul. In a sense, we can say we were all in Egypt because we were all included in those 600,000 souls. That's why when we were stood by Har Sinai, it says every Jew was there because we were all embedded in their souls. And then later we came as out as details. So now we're working only with the details. Then they worked with the primary work, which is the first 202 sparks. Now, these sparks of holiness were contained in the physical wealth of Egypt. That's why we understand that when God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, please, 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 tell the Jewish people not to leave without, please beg of them to go ask the Egyptians to give them their gold. And their, why was it so important? If, especially if the Jews were willing to, 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 uh, to, to, to be Michael, to, to, to forgive it and say, you know, let's just get it a day earlier. The answer is, if you're working in a mine and you're mining for gold and you work and you work and you work and you're suffocating in the mine and you get injuries and bruises and illness and who knows what, of, of, of you're working through intense heat and freezing cold and you get all, you extract all the gold, and, but then you leave the mine and you leave the gold behind. It's totally ridiculous. It's insane. If the Jewish people were to leave Egypt and not take the gold and silver with them, which means where these sparks were contained, this would be 
it would have been that all the work was in vain. So Hashem says, you have to take those sparks. You have to take the gold and silver. Now as much as they, as, now I mentioned that the, this extraction came in two phases. Phase number one was the day they went out of Egypt. And the primary extraction happened by the sea. Now, now we'll also understand why, that's what we're talking about, the loot. The loot was so great. We'll also understand why there was such spectacular revelation of God by the splitting of the sea. You see, when we brought back all these Nitsutse Kedusha, these sparks of holiness, to holiness, back to where they belong, first of all, we were enriched with incredible enrichment. And these sparks opened up and their light started shining. And that light was the great divinity, the great light of, of Kriya But in addition to that, being that these sparks are God's children, they're pieces of Hashem, they're like pieces, limbs, so to speak, of God that were detached from Him. The return of these sparks of holiness is the greatest joy for Hashem. There is no greater joy than bringing back something that is a piece of Hashem that has been separated from Him. And God forbid, chas v'shalem, it was trapped in such a horrific state. Its return is like the prince coming back home after he was in captivity. The joy that Hashem had from the retrieval of these sparks is indescribable. And when you cause joy, when, when someone is joyous, that causes them to open up. Simcha causes revelation. When someone is in a state of joy and happiness... They open up, they talk a lot, they reveal, they reveal their secrets. They, they reveal the most inner, 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 intimate uh, um, uh, um, um, ideas and, 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 and secrets are revealed when a person is in a state of, generally like a person is closed, you know, there's certain things they're not going you know, to share with others. But when they're in a state of simcha, we find by big tzaddikim that the deepest Torah they taught and their most highest, and sometimes they even would say things about themselves that we would never hear. But in the time of the, when they, a time of a chasana, when they married off their child or something, it was like unbelievable. And the same is at the time when we completed and we brought, we had the complete extraction from the 202 sparks that we took out of Egypt. This caused such godly joy, and as a consequently, such revelation. And that's why the revelation of the Yamsa, there was nothing to compare because it was the simcha of the halas hanitzutzis of the elevation of the sparks of holiness. This will also explain, so you see that the two are related. It's not just two separate things that happened at Kriyas Yamsa, but one is intrinsically bound up with the other because we had the loot, and that's the reason why there was the great joy of Kriyas Yamsa. Now, we'll also explain the idea of the connection of what that has to do with the why we, the Jewish people, went through a body of water and why the water split. Water, in general, represents a concealed place. When you go to the ocean, kick a look, go take a drive down by Malibu, go, go to Venice Beach, go look at the water. When you look at the water, you see a, it's a zone, it's an area, right? Um, it looks like water. All you can see is water. Over here where the water is not that clean, so for sure you can't see. Even when there is clean water, okay, you can see a little bit. You don't really know what's happening under the ocean. And the ocean conceals an entire world. What's concealed in the ocean? This 
magnificent, magnificent beauty in the ocean. There are forests, there are mountain ranges, there are kelp forests, there is spectacular, spectacular fish, beautiful fish, there's unbelievable coral reefs. The ocean is a world. But to the look, to the one looking from the surface, all you see is just water. Don't see the world. It's, it's called Almadis Kasi, it's the closed world. So if we use that as a metaphor, it refers to the concealed world of the divine. God's secrets. The majestic beauty of God. And the supernal, 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 majestic, beautiful, um, divine, the spiritual world filled with divine bliss and ecstasy. It's all concealed and hidden from our lower experience, from our physical experience from our ordinary consciousness. When we came to the Yamsov, God, because there was a time of such simcha and such joy, and because of the sparks of holiness that we've elevated, the sea split open, which means God allowed the Jewish people to take a look at the inner secret world, what's taking place in the inner, to see Hashem, literally to see God. That's why we say that the prophecies of the prophets was considered peanuts. It says that the prophecy at the Harsi, at the giving of the when we when we split um sorry but the splitting of the sea was even higher. The Medrash says even the Moshe Rabbein had Moshe Rabbeinu said he sees God said you'll see my back not my front, and over here they saw what no one ever saw, higher than what angels see. High, unbelievable, because Hashem tore open took them through a tour under the sea just like physically when they went through the sea. We know that the Red Sea, where they went through, is beautiful coral reefs. They had the most amazing tour in in the uh, in the uh, in the in the in the uh, like uh, uh, you know to, to see the 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 underworld, the under the, the the world buried, the beautiful world under the water. So now, just like physically it was, spiritually it was the same thing. Now, to get a little more specific. Particularly, what was what was the, the hidden realm that was revealed to them was what's called was the Yamsuf. What does Yamsuf mean? So the word Suf means from the word Saif. Saif means the end, the end sea. What does that mean, the end sea? So let's understand something. The way God creates the world, the way Hashem relates to the creation, is that. And we spoke about many times. In order to create our world, Hashem has to cover Himself. And Hashem covers Himself with many, many, many layers of concealments, with many screens and many filters. If God's light was to shine brightly as it is, it would not leave room for any possible existence of anything else. Everything would be burnt up by His powerful, powerful um, truth, exclusive truth of God's existence. And it would not allow for anything else to be. Everything would melt in his light. So in order to create, so as the Kabbalists tell us, is a series of many, many, many tzimtzumim. It's hinted to in the beginning of the Torah. It says, Bereshis bara Elohim. That the way God created was through the power of Elohim. Elohim means concealment. And this concealment comes through the various levels and levels of concealment. Primarily, there is what's called the first tzimtzum and another tzimtzum and another tzimtzum contraction. But one of the series of contractions is what's called the ten sefirot. The ten sefirot, ten attributes, are all 
vessels that conceal. Each one of them conceal. On the one hand, they reveal God's light, but the way they're revealing Hashem is through concealing His, His light. It's going through one container after another container. The last and final container is called the attribute of Malchus. Malchus is the attribute of kingship. That itself is a big filter because that God is pretending to be a king, meaning he is acknowledging that there is a world, there is something other than him, which really in truth of truth is not true. In truth of truth, there is nothing but God. He is and there's none but him. But the fact that God assumes himself to be a king means that he's concealing his light so much and he himself is in a sense buying into that concealment He's dimming his own vision, his own light, so that he can see us as a reality, we can see and we can experience ourselves as something. And again, and so far, we can experience ourselves, that we can experience ourselves so much that we can even question God's existence. That's how dark the concealment is eventually, as we go through concealment after concealment. So the last and final concealment of Hashem is the attribute of Malchus. And that's why Malchus is called Yam Suf. It's a, it's a sea, it gathers all the energy from above, all the light, all the godly energy flow, flowing through all the attributes is gathered, just like the sea gathers water from all the rivers. It all flows. All the rivers flow to the sea. Malchus receives all this, but Malchus is a big, big, gigantic barrier and not allowing that great godly light to filter through into creation. Only a tiny little bit of energy goes through and becomes the life-sustaining force of the creations. When we say that God allowed us to see the divine, what happened was he breaks open this filter. Which filter? The last filter. The filter of Malchus, which is the separation between God and the creation. Hashem tears open that filter and lets us see beyond that filter. When you're looking beyond that filter, you're seeing the divine. But what element of the divine are you seeing? You're seeing the lowest element of, 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 of divinity, which is the attribute of Malchus. That's the idea of Yam Suf. We can get to see, in other words, we can get to see the creative life force. Generally, we know with faith that God is creating us. We can even recognize it intellectually that Hashem is creating us, but we don't, we don't know. And even if we can come to a very we, very, we know a lot of Kabbalah, and we learn a lot of Hasidus and things, and we get a lot of information about the divine, it still remains information. We don't see the substance of divinity. Because if we were to see the divine, it would, it would nullify us, our existence. The amazing thing of the splitting of the sea was we got to experience raw divinity. We got to see it and experience it. Suddenly, wherever we looked, we saw light. I saw just recently an expression, a, 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 a description of the Baal Shem Tov where he describes that one day he studied with his, 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 um, his uh, master, Achia Ashiloini, and his master told him one day to go dip in a mikvah called the, per the Perut River. He should dip there 18 times. Then he took him into a cave and he studied with him for three days straight. They didn't stop, they didn't eat. There was no food, there was nothing. Three days straight of pure studying of the deepest secrets. And then Rachi took him out of the cave and they went outside and he placed his hands on the Baal Shem Tov's heads 
and he said, you should be blessed with open eyes. And he left. And he was standing there alone. And suddenly, he felt the most intense yearning like he'd never felt in his life. The most intense, powerful, powerful yearning and longing. It's as if his entire soul was, was going to rapture. He couldn't believe how intense his thirst and longing for God's light was. It was tearing through his body. Now the Baal Shem Tov had felt many times intense yearning for, for Hashem. Tzamal nafshi lalokim. But nothing compared to the intensity of this longing. And after a few, like this lasted, I don't know, it doesn't describe exactly how long it lasted. And after this powerful longing, suddenly the sensation, suddenly everything opened up. And he can see light pure godliness everywhere. He saw God's light emanating from the ground, from the trees, from the grass, from the clouds, from the sky, from everything that he could see, everything around him, from the rivers, from the lakes. He was out in the, in the, in the hills, in the forest. Wherever he looked, wherever, from the bumblebees, from the birds, he can see and he can hear Hashem's light, literally, and it came in waves, waves, of pure godly words. He can see, he can see the divine, the divine that was within creation. That's how the Baal Shem Tov describes. Unbelievable. In other words, Hashem took away the barrier from him. And now he saw how literally he can see it with his eyes. That things that we see as stuff is just pure godly light. And the ecstasy and the bliss and the song that came out from him at that time was indescribable. And, the Shem Tov, and this remained the Baal Shem Tov's state of vision, for the, I think, for the rest of his life. So that kind of revelation that we're talking about was what the Jewish people experienced when they were in the Yamsuf. Because what happened that now was the barrier that blocks the creation from the Creator was suddenly revealed. And they can see the substance of the divine letters, divine speech that is creating the world. Unbelievable revelation. This was the revelation by the Yamsuf which is this tearing over the sea. However, this was, it still had its limitation. As we said before, it was only the last filter that God had totally torn open. But there are many other filters that are hiding higher and higher and higher light. When Mashiach will come, when we will complete the... And the reason why it was only was measured was because we didn't complete the job. We only brought back 202 sparks out of the 288. When Be'ezus Hashem, when we've now completed, and as I mentioned in the parshas Vayishlach Shir, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said clearly, and it takes only a tzaddik like him that can say this, that we've completed already the avoda of all sparks of holiness. There's nothing left. Now we're just awaiting the geula. When this, when the geula is going to come again, we're going to go through a body of water. But this time, the body of water that we're going to go through is going to be a river. It is not going to be um, the, 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 the sea, it's going to be the river. What does it mean, the river? So Kabbalistically, going back to what I mentioned earlier, that Hashem's filtering the light comes through the ten sephiros. The last and final sphero, which serves as the main barrier between the creator and the creation, is the attribute of Malchus, which is called Yam Suf. But there's a higher, but above Malchus, is a level of the six emotional attributes of God. And then above that is something called Bina, the attribute of Bina. 
And above that is Chachma. So there is Bina, Chachma, and then Bina. And then there is the six emotions, Chesed, Gevura, Teferes, Netzachod, Yesod, and finally Malchus. By Kriyas Yamsuf, Hashem tore open the attribute of Malchus. To allow was to experience the letters of divine speech without any concealments. When Mashiach will come, God is going to tear open the river. The river is referring to Bina. Bina is much, much higher than Malchus. And when God is going to tear open the attribute of Bina, what we're going to experience is divinity on a level so much higher than, than even divine letters. Let's understand that. For a moment, let's just get a little bit of understanding. What's, what, what's the difference between experiencing the light and Hashem tearing open the barrier of Bina and versus tearing open the barrier of Malchus? Malchus, we've discussed many times, is the king rules with his mouth. So the Zohar says, Malchus peh. Malchus is Hashem's mouth. How does, the, how does Hashem rule over the creation? How did God create the world? With speech. Right? With the ten utterances, God created the world. But we know that letters, all communication comes from speech, from letters. But letters exist really on two levels. There are letters in which we communicate outside of ourselves. These are letters of speech. And then there is another form of letters called letters of thought. Letters of thought in which, is which, in which we communicate with ourselves. Our stream of consciousness is thought. All conscious awareness as another, how do we experience any idea, any 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 concept? It's also through through words or any emotion. It's through words, we're talking to ourselves. We're not necessarily physically moving our lips, but we're we're hearing words, letters. You think in a language. So those are words, words of thought. You see now, now just an important idea about letters. Letters are the instruments of expression. You can't express anything without letters. But as much as letters express, letters also conceal. And to a certain degree, not to a certain degree, they conceal more than they reveal. And precisely because they conceal, that's why they reveal. You see, we're not, we can't handle raw energy because we don't have a grasp on raw energy. So in order for any kind of energy to be able to be absorbed, to be able to, for us to be able to be able to take it, it has to come in a vessel, in a container. Light without a vessel is just, is not, it will destroy us. Let me put it in other words. If you were to experience the pure emotional charge of your soul, and it would not flow into your consciousness with words, it would create overcharge, and you would have a nervous breakdown. It would just be too intense. It would just be too much. It would be couldn't handle it. Sadly, there are people that are not, that have some kind of a mental deficiency. Sometimes that mental deficiency is related to, the mental deficiency is related to a lack of these, of the Bina element of letters. So they experience things very intense, extreme intense, intense charge of emotion or intense charge of maybe even intellectual light but if there's no letters over there, it's, it will it will just I say it will burn the brain. It will, it will. Do. So therefore, what are the letters? Letters are vessels that that limit the light. It comes in an organized fashion. 
and we're able to like deal with it. We're able to absorb it. Now, this, it's, and as mentioned earlier, there are coarser letters and external letters which we use to communicate with others. So if I want to communicate an idea to you, if I want to share an emotion with you, I will put it into words. If I have an emotion and the emotion is exciting me very much and I'm just going, Rah! and I'm shouting like a right? So what am I communicating to you? Even though I know what I'm experiencing, but you don't know what I'm experiencing because all you hear is this, Rah! right? It, you can't handle it. But I have, to, so I have to take the emotion and put it into sentences. And then I can give it over. I can tell you how much I love you. I can tell you how much I'm angry at you. But I have to put it into something. So we say to someone, talk, please talk. You're upset, talk. Tell me what you're saying. Convey it in words. The words break it down into bite-sized pieces. I'm able to handle it. But by doing that, it's weakening it. It's weakening it tremendously. Same is also a concept. If I was to try to give you the concept as is, you couldn't handle it. No one. A person, it has to come through words. And with words, we can communicate. As we do it to the outside, the same is also when you have an epiphany, the first epiphany, the first emergence of an emotion is true, is without words. But that's very, that's still above us. When we want to process it and make it part of who we are, it has to come through the bina. The bina give it the words, and the words then it's able to, we're able to, we're able to like ground it, take it in, and, and it becomes settled, settled in our life through the words. Now, now we'll understand um, as we apply this above Tashem as well, because Mipsari because God created the human being in his image, so we can look at ourselves from our flesh, we can see the divine. Um, when God spoke the world into existence, as we mentioned before, words are a barrier. Now, let me just explain just one more important idea. The barrier of God's words, I mean, when God created the world, we don't even see Hashem's words at all. When Hashem spoke, we don't see His words. Why don't we see His words? Or even if, and the, re, the reason for that is because when Hashem spoke, imagine if I was to take this class that I just gave right now, okay? So I'm speaking now maybe for an hour and 15 minutes. This class is hopefully organized ideas, trying to organize it as best as I can. And, uh, you know, it, it, and it makes sense. Now, if you were to take these very, very words, if I was to have some um, um, uh, computer uh, app um, that can take this audio that I have right now and take the words and rearrange them, that the words will be thrown around in all directions. Let's say I said in this last class 2,932 words. And if it was to take the 2,932 words and just rearrange them into complete random patterns. And then you would listen to the share. Would you understand anything that was said? Absolutely not, because it doesn't make any sense because it's not organized in the right form. Now let me make it even worse than that. Take it a step further. What happens if it doesn't only, doesn't only confuse the words or the sentences, but it confuses the letters? It breaks all the letters that were said and rearranges the thousands of letters into different patterns, then it wouldn't make anything. You couldn't, think, you couldn't derive any concept from what has been said. That's the way when God creates the world. He does say cohesive sentences and words, but to us, to the world, it looks like a mishmash. It looks like a confused. The letters are not in a way that can be understood by the creations, and it's like this hidden code, but it's not in any way that makes sense. 
That's because of the barrier of Malchus. When Hashem tears the sea open, we get to experience the words and we get to see the magnificent pattern and the magnificent, the, the content is what has been said. Everything suddenly is so, makes so much sense. The entire cosmos, all of history, everything is so perfect. Everything in the world, you see the light in it. It's not a confusing, mumble-jumble world full of coincidences. It's a world that makes such perfect sense. That's what the Jews saw when they came through the Yamsuf, because they saw the divine speech. But even when the speech is organized, and you, you have the ideas in the speech, as we said earlier, speech is still blocking. It's still words. You can't, you're not seeing the intense idea beyond speech. But there's another idea. How about if we were able to go past even the level of thoughts, not just speech, break through the words and break through the thought and experience the pure divine energy as it is pre-thought, pre-vessels. Obviously, to go into that state would mean we lose our existence completely because we can only exist after the filters. Without the filters, we can't exist. Yet when Mashiach will come, we are going to merit such incredible godly revelation that not only did Hashem tear open and we'll see the godly words, we're going to see divinity in its pure state, even prior to Hashem's thoughts blocking it, even higher than, than the letters of thought. We get to see pure, intense God's light as it is in the, in the level of Chachma, not in the level of Bina pure and its most intense, pure emanation of the divine. That's what it means that they will cross. That's the meaning that they will cross the river when Mashiach will come. Now, how is it possible when we cross that river that we're going to survive? What does it mean that when we cross that river, how are we going to survive? That's why I mentioned the beginning of the class, the Pasuk says, and the other side of the river your father sat. What does that mean? That means that, true, such godly revelation should cancel our existence completely. But the fact that we are Jewish souls and we emanate from the deepest innermost of God's essence, that's the meaning what the Pasuk says we say in that Gada. Our forefathers means our fathers, but it also means our souls. Our origins are on the other side of the divine river meaning the rest of creation is created by divine speech, by letters. There are higher creations and higher worlds that are created by divine thought, by letters of thought, not letters of speech. But we, the Jewish souls, emanate in a place even beyond the river of thought, even higher than Bina. We come from the very essence of Chachma, because like a child comes from the father's brain, comes from the Chachma. We emanate in the deepest element. And when Mashiach comes, we're going to make contact back. We're going to go back to our essence of our soul to experience God on that level. And over there, we can experience divine be- and not be canceled because that's really our origins where we begin. But the most beautiful and amazing thing is that not only we will, will we go there with our souls, we will go there with our bodies as well. We will go to that pure state of godliness with our bodies. Let's understand this for a moment by prefacing one more idea, and this is going to wrap it all up. And then we're going to come back to explain the idea of why the Torah in one place says six days you should eat matzah, 
and all the other ideas that we spoke about earlier. We're coming, we're bringing it together now. And the idea is as follows. This whole process of divine light flowing into the universe through these various different stages um, of filters is meaning first initial Hashem's light is emanating in the Chachma, which is pure light. It doesn't have any vessels yet. Then it goes through the vessels of the Bina. Bina is the letters of thought. Then it continues into the emotions. And then it, continue, it goes through another filter, which is the vessels of speech. Now, I just want to mention one important idea. These two primary vessels, which is called Bina and Malchus, are both feminine. Because the woman is a vessel. Man is energy and woman is considered the container, the vessel. So um, the, in, in Hashem's name, there, is, there are four letters, Yud, K, Vav, K. The two He's are the two female, that's the, the vessel. That's why a He is a big letter. It has sp- space to it. It's the, it's the recipient, it's the space, it's a vessel. The Yud and the, and the Vav are both masculine, they're both energy, a flow of energy. And the way it works is like this. Yud is a point of infinite energy. Powerful, powerful, infinite energy. That's the Yud. The Yud, the world can't experience the Yud. Impossible. It would destroy the world completely, so the Yud has to go through the He. The He is the Bina, the first recipient, the first vessel. That's thought. It, it filters the intense light. It filters the intense light. And it puts it into words. Words of thought. See, the moment it comes into words of thought, as we said earlier, it's no more. It's, it's just thoughts. Thoughts are no more the brilliant light. It's already dimmed. It's tremendously dimmed. It's still very bright, but it's still very, it's very dimmed. Then what happens? The filtered light that goes through the filter of Bina that continues further is the Vav. So the Vav and the Yud are the same thing. The Yud is the energy pre-filtration. The Vav is the energy after it's been filtered with the first filter of the hay. But it's now energy, it's still energy, but it's already a far weaker light, but too intense for the creation. Then the vav gets filtered in the latter hay, and when it filters in the latter hay, then it comes through, that energy comes through to create the world, and that's when the, re- the worlds are able to receive the light, after two filters. The first filter is the upper hay, bino, which is the river. The second filter is the filter of Malchus, which is speech. When God took the Jewish people through the Yamsuf, He tore open both filters. Th- sorry. When Hashem took the Jewish people through the Yamsuf, He f- tore open the lower filter, the filter of Malchus. When Mashiach comes, He's going to break the hay. He's going to cut open the hay that we're going to experience the Yud, not the Vav. We're going to experience the Yud. Pristine, pure godliness on a level of vision. Unbelievable, pure Chach. Now this entire story, this entire flow of life into the world is hinted to in a Pasuk in Bereshis. It says, V'nohar Eden. A river emerges from Eden. V'nohar and a river, Yoytzeme Eden, goes out from Eden. Lahashko says Gan, to water the Gan, which is Gan Eden. Omisham Yipar Eden, from there it splits. V'hoyalarbarashim, it becomes four head rivers. Talking about a river flowing there's this place called Aden. Then there's a river. Then it goes to the Gan Aden. Then it goes into become the four rivers, the Euphrates, the Nile, whatever, the Tigris River. These are four rivers. So the question, oh, 
Kabbalistically, however, this idea is an amazing idea. This refers to the entire cosmic flow of energy. The A then, that's that Yud. It's the first point of godly, of, of, of creation light, of Hashem's light towards the creation. But again, it's pure light. It's unadulterated, unfiltered light. That's the Yud, that's Eden. It goes in, the Nahar is the river. The river is thought, just like thought. It's constantly flowing. We can't stop our thoughts. It's like a river. It's words that are constantly, like a flow of words. So it's that powerful energy translated already into words. That's the river of Bina. It flows through all the way down to the Gan. Gan the Gan, that's the garden, that's Malchus. And after Malchus, it becomes four rivers. That's already entering. The energy is entering in creation. So that's the flow of life. So the sages say an interesting thing, powerful thing. Sages say, someone might think that Gan, that's Eden. That Eden and Gan is the same thing. We speak about Gan Eden, the Gan, the Garden of Eden. So the, the Gemara says, no. Since it says, the river goes out of Eden, to give water to the, to the, to the, to the Gan, is a sign that Eden and Gan are two separate things. Eden l'chud, Eden is its own thing, and Gan is l'chud, is its own thing. And Eden is much higher than the Gan. And the Gemara says an amazing thing. The Gemara says that all the prophecies that have been prophesied until that has been said, anything that the prophets spoke about, when they spoke about all the ecstasy and bliss, and all the whatever happens, the reward that there is in all the supernal worlds, that's only the Gan. That's from the river and onward. But no one ever spoke about Aden. Aden itself, Ayin Loira Asa, the eye has not behold it. No one knows Aden. Aden is an unknowable paint, please. Why? Because Aden is Chachma. And Chachma is beyond description. And no one ever prophesies. No one can see Chachma. It will only be revealed when Mashiach will come. When? When we cross the river. Now, what did the sages say? Now, here's the clincher. Here it all comes together. What did the sages say about Aden, about Olam Haba, that future world when we can experience God without any filters at all? What did the sages say about it? They say, Olam Haba, the world to come, there is no eating, no drinking. But rather, people sit, and their crowns are on their head, and they delight. It talks about a world where there will not be any a world where there will not be any eating. Today's days we are sustained by food. When Mashiach will come, we will not be sustained by food. We will do, we will do physically we will be physically nourished by godly light. So the explanation of that is food gives us life. Aside for the nutrition that there is in the food, there is pleasure in food. You see, for human life, we need pleasure. Pleasure keeps us going. We don't even realize it, but the very, the very experience of being alive is pleasurable. But it's a constant pleasure, so we're not necessarily... It's pleasurable. Life is pleasure. When we eat, why, is, why did God make food be pleasurable? Because food sustains us, and it adds life through its pleasure. The Pleasure of food, the, the way we receive, but really, what is it in its core? It's godly pleasure. But the way pleasure trickles down from God to, to the world 
it's through this, as we mentioned earlier, through a powerful, powerful descent of filters and 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 filters, and filters, and filters until the pleasure comes down in these little tiny, tiny, tiny little crumbs of pleasure of physical foods and all gourmet foods and whatever there is. It's all these tiny little pieces of leftover of tiny pleasure. And we receive the pleasure through the food, and that's what sustains us and gives us life. However, and, on, and we know there's a difference. In the weekday, this pleasure is full of klipot. It's unholy, and we have to work on making it holy by having good intentions. On Shabbos, we get to experience Hashem's pleasure through the f- pleasure of the food, the Shabbos and Anyant. It's a mitzvah to eat because we experience the pleasure, the klipa falls away, the shells fall away. We experience divine pleasure directly. That's on Shabbos. However, even on Shabbos and Anyantif, we, re- we, we're still, we can't experience God's light because we said before we need a vessel, we need a container. We have to go through words which ultimately translate also that the pleasure comes through food, it comes through something else. In Olam Abba, we're going to go past all barriers. In the world of Mashiach, when we cross the river, we will go through all barriers. And the, all screens and all filters. We will get to experience pure divine pleasure as it is. Not in any filtration at all. And to be sustained from that is it's not normal. And that's going to be the ultimate sustaining force. That's going to be when? When we cross. Because we're going to go into Aden. And Aden is a world without vessels. So the pleasure is what we might call a naked pleasure. There is no filter on that pleasure at all. Pure divinity as it is. Potent divinity as it is. Without any concealments. Now we understand. Here's the amazing idea of why there's only one pasuk in the Torah that it says. When it speaks about Shvishal Pesach. And it says six days you should eat matzah as opposed to seven days. And it also implies that you're not allowed to do any food preparation. And it also seems to imply that you can make the day totally spiritual as we began the class with. And here is the depth of it all. Hear this. Shneer Zalman of Liadi describes it, the, 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 the Alter Rebbe in, in, his, in, 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 Sefer, uh, in his Sefer Lakuti Torah, in the second Sheshis Yamim. You can look it up. Unbelievable. And the idea is as follows. The idea is as follows. That the reason why Shvishal Pesach is discussed differently in the Torah, sometimes it says seven days you should eat matzah, is because there's two Shvishal Pesachs. There is the Shvishal Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach of now, and there is the seventh day of Pesach of the future. The Shvishal Pesach of now, we're celebrating only the first crossing of the river. Since we're celebrating, I'm sorry, the first crossing of the water, which is the crossing of the sea. Then we're experiencing God, there's still some containers, there are still some vessels, there's still some filters. So therefore, Shvishal Pesach, since there's a filter, there's still Kalim, there's still vessels. So the, the way we experience the pleasure is what? Through, through food. So once there is food, so we eat matzah. Not only that, the idea of matzah means katno samoichen. Matzah is a tasteless bread. It represents an immature understanding. Since godliness is still very much contracted, even though we're experiencing the letters, even though we're going through the Yamsav, it's still considered katnus. It's still considered a contracted state. So we eat matzah. And we also have to eat food. But sheish, as Yom and matzah is referring about when Mashiach will come. Once there's going to be shvishel pesach after we're going to cross the river, that shvishel pesach is going to be in a whole different level. 
We're going to be already once we cross the river. We're going to go into a place of Olam Abba. We're going to hit Aden itself. You hear what's happening? We're going through the river. We're going back to Aden. Be'evar to the very place where our very root souls come from before we ever, before we were planted in creation. But the, 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 the unique thing is this time we're going back with our bodies. Then we were just a divine a, a concept in God's mind. That's when we existed over there. But now we're going to go there as full-fledged human beings with our bodies. And we're going to go into that revelation. And therefore it says, six days eat matzah. Shri Pesach, there's no matzah because there's no more katnus amoich. And there's no more contracted matzah anymore. There's no more eating at all. That's why the Tosik says, don't do any work. There's no need to have food preparation because you're not allowed to. Because it's past, it's Shvisha Pesach, it's going to be a holiday that's already, there's no more, there's no more food preparation because you're not allowed to eat, and there's no more eating. Not only that, it's a, it's a gathering for God's sake, there's no lachem, there's no, because the, the pleasure is purely in the divine, it's not coming through anything physical because there's no more vessels. Now there's one day compared to this on our calendar that we have a little taste of this, and this is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, what's it called again, we have Yom Kippur, we have uh, one day that is the most closest to this. The reason why we don't eat on Yom Kippur is not just because we come to inflict ourselves. Yom Kippur is a day that we are the closest to this experience. Obviously, we're not conscious of it, but really, Yom Kippur is a day where our where our where our where our where we don't need any food. The reason we don't eat Yom Kippur is we don't need any food. We're in this Olam Abba experience. But what do we do, Yom Kippur, in order to experience it? We have to detach from our body. And one of the ways we detach from our body is by removing our shoes. We don't wear shoes on Yom Kippur. The idea of removing shoes means you're removing the lowly part of your body. You're disconnecting from your very physical. The shoes are the most physical part of the person there, touching the ground. You're stepping away from your material body, from your body, and you're moving into a, you're detaching. You're elevating yourself. And only through the detachment are you, are you experiencing this godliness. That's what the Pasuk is saying over here in Yeshaya, that when Mashiach will come, you're going to go through the river, but this time, you're going to come with your shoes. He's going to, meaning with the most physical part of your being is going to be able to enter into this pure divine ecstasy and bliss forever and ever, and the body is not going to be destroyed. The reason is because we've purified the body through thousands of years of Torah and mitzvahs. And now the physical will be completely receptive to this godly revelation. May we all merit to have an amazing, amazing, amazing Shvishal Pesach. An amazing Pesach. And may we merit that all this should not just be great inspiration, but all this should be reality. This year, that we should merit to celebrate Pesach in Yerushalayim and the third base Amigdash. And we should be in Eden with our physical bodies in the coming of Mashiach this year.